Good morning, Mercy Hill. It's good to be with you. My name is Brad. I'm one of the elders, and uh, it's great to be with you on the live stream this morning. We look forward to when we can be back together in this room um, for some of us who can gather together, and we'll look forward to that. Um, Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 9. Today, we're going to look at all of chapter 9 in this really remarkable and unique story. As you're turning there in your Bibles, it's pretty obvious that we live in really uncertain times today. Uh, I, I don't need to say that out loud for you to know that that is our experience. We're living in really uncertain times and the question is how do we make sense of all that we are experiencing? This last week has been particularly difficult as parents are um, scrambling to figure out what to do, at least in our public schools here. All kids are going back uh, to school virtually, which means that uh, they will be homeschooled in a sense. And so parents are scrambling and it seems as as if there are daily squabbles about COVID-19 that becomes more and more politicized. The economy has experienced the worst drop in a single quarter in this last second quarter. And so as we look around, we see so much uncertainty. And the question is this, where is God in the midst of the uncertainty? Where is God particularly in our suffering? And the story that we look at today helps us to unpack that very question. Does suffering always mean we are experiencing God's judgment? And how does the Bible call us in times like the times in which we live that are very uncertain, in which some people are experiencing suffering? How does the Bible instruct us how we should face and understand that suffering? In this remarkable story, here's the big idea for today. We see that Jesus uses suffering to show us his desire to bring spiritual sight to all who will admit their blindness. Look with me at John chapter 9. As I've already said, this is a remarkable and at times comical story. Follow along beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciple asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The context of this story comes on the heels of Jesus declaring, I am the light of the world. There are seven I am statements that we'll see in the gospel of John. Jesus would say words like, I am the bread of life. Or I am the light of the world. Or next Sunday, 
Chris Stewart will be leading us through the Good Shepherd passage in which Jesus will say, I am the door. So we see these different I am statements as Jesus gives context to who he is. And this story is coming directly off the hills of the Feast of Tabernacles. All of Israel is joined together in festival. They're celebrating with great joy in the temple. And in this moment, Jesus, in the midst of their joy, declares that I am the light of the world. Now think about this for a minute. Of all the individuals that Jesus could have approached as he left the temple courts, of all the beggars... And of all of the men and the women who must have sought his attention, Jesus happens to choose a man who is blind from birth. This is the only instance we see in all of the Gospels in which Jesus heals someone who was stricken with some kind of malady or some type of handicap or suffering from birth. And as we look at this, We see that this is the sixth of seven signs that Jesus will perform. Now, this is important in understanding what Jesus is teaching in this passage and what John is showing us through his writing. This is the sixth of seven signs. The first sign would be turning water into wine. And we see each of these signs progressively throughout the scriptures feeding the 5,000 or walking on water. And in each of these signs, they are physical miracles in John's gospel that teach us a greater spiritual reality. So don't miss the fact that in this story, Jesus is using a physical miracle that is amazing in and of itself. But this physical miracle is teaching an even greater spiritual reality within the kingdom of God. Consider for a moment what this man's life must have been like. Blind from birth. He's never seen his mom and dad. He's never seen a sunrise or a sunset. He's never looked upon a beautiful woman before and wondered, could I ask her out? Would she be interested in me? He has never seen all the things that we take for granted. He is completely dependent. He is unable to have a family or to work. He is likely overlooked. He's unable to to enter the temple because of his blindness. He is helpless. He's in a type of solitary confinement unless someone has mercy on him and enters into his world. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Don't miss this part of the story. Jesus sees someone in need and he shows them compassion. We would do well oftentimes to remember this in our own lives. It's because Jesus meets a physical need in this man's life that the man is open to receive help regarding the even greater spiritual needs that exist in his life. Look at verse 2. The disciples rudely ask, Who sinned, this man or his parents? I wonder how often... Are those who experience suffering because of some type of physical limitation or handicap? How often are they forced to listen to demeaning statements like this one? 
I think if you interviewed someone who is blind today, you would probably hear from them that they are oftentimes treated with impatience, maybe honked at as they try to cross the street, that, that largely they're spoken to harshly because people are in a rush and they don't have time for compassion. Jesus had time. He slowed down. Uh, but before we dismiss the disciples... They aren't so far in their thinking from the way that many of us think when it comes to suffering. How often do you see suffering as judgment from God in your own life? Maybe you don't consciously think of it in that way. But how often do we kind of play into this mentality of if I do good deeds, then God rewards me. And if something goes wrong in my life, then God must be punishing me. I remember a boss that I had back in high school. And this particular boss, he would oftentimes say to me, I worked at a furniture store and he was in his 60s. He always made me back up. So whatever we picked up, I was backing up. So one of my few talents in life is that I can carry really heavy objects in reverse really well. And uh, that's what we did. I delivered furniture. And we would have big curio cabinets or large sofas or big pieces of furniture that we were delivering. And he was too stubborn to use a dolly. He would say, oh, that'll, that'll just take more time. Let's just carry it. And when we had a large piece of furniture and we would make it through a doorway or we would make it up an angled stairwell that we thought was going to be really tight, if we cleared with this piece of furniture that weighed I don't know, a couple hundred pounds and cost a few thousand dollars. He'd say, oh, Brad, you must have been living right. That was his constant go-to. Brad, somebody must have been living right. And there's this sense, maybe you've heard older people use that phrase before. There's this sense that if things work out, it's because God is rewarding us. Some type of karma. The truth is, is that we should be thankful that karma doesn't exist. Um, we all experience suffering. And instantly, oftentimes when we do experience suffering, we ask, what have I done wrong? Or why doesn't God love me? Or if he loved me, this wouldn't be happening to me. Have you ever had that experience before? Have you ever felt that way in the midst of struggles? Maybe you're there right now. Maybe job, your job and your finances aren't going well in the midst of this pandemic. Maybe you've been hugely affected in your relationships and you're asking God why are you punishing me I just remind you of the story of Job Job suffered because he was the most righteous man in all the earth I'm not saying you're the most righteous person in all the earth it's probably not true I know it's not for me but Job suffered because of his righteousness, because he feared God and turned away from evil. And so Satan struck him down by taking everything away. His health, his wealth, his family. Well, everything except his nagging wife. Which in Job's story would have been a blessing if Satan would have just taken her as well. But leaving her was part of Job's suffering, it seemed. You'll have to read the story if you don't want to trust me on that one. But Job suffered because he was righteous. 
And so I want to remind us that all suffering is not simply punishment for our sin. We pick up in verse 3 and Jesus goes on to explain. He says, not this man or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says that sometimes we experience suffering for the sole purpose of showing the greatness and the glory of God. We should be careful about running from our suffering. Because suffering is often where God does his greatest work in our lives. In the moments in which we are forced to depend on him. So we must be careful that we don't get stuck trying to figure out the why of our suffering. That's what the disciples were doing here. Why is this man blind? Whose sin is responsible for this? As the, as the disciples thought about it, one piece of clarity that I want to bring is that the Bible does address suffering. At the end of the day, suffering in general, exists because of Adam and Eve. Suffering exists because Adam and Eve sinned and passed along a sin nature to each of us, which theologians refer to as the doctrine of depravity. So it's important as you think about the, uh, your own suffering, the suffering that you face in your own life, that you understand that some suffering does come to us because of our sin. Romans 5 verse 12 explains this uh, very well. Romans 5 verse 12 says, I'm going to give you a theological background for the doctrine of depravity really quick. And then I'm going to give you a practical example. Romans 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Psalm 51 verse 5 would say it this way in speaking to our sinful nature. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Finally, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 would say it this way. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The Bible speaks of the doctrine of depravity. It, and if you don't believe if you're really hesitant to take my word, or if you don't believe the Bible, that's okay. Just invite some short people into your life. Invite, have a family, and have some kids, and just experience the way in which you don't teach your kids how to say no. And you might think it's cute if you're watching someone else's kid, but when your one and a half year old sits in their high chair, and you look at them and they pick their plate up that you've just fixed. And you say, no, no, little Johnny, don't you do it. And Johnny throws it on the floor and laughs at you. When he does that day after day after day, it's not funny anymore. Kids teach us that we are depraved, that there is an evil wickedness that is formed in our heart that we have by our very nature. And that's not a matter of pessimistic theology. That's a matter of realistic theology. 
The doctrine of depravity is foundational in understanding our need for Jesus. It helps us see our, our condition at birth, which is that we are guilty. Not that we're sick or, or under the weather or that we make mistakes or that we're just kind of bad people sometimes. But the scriptures would indicate that we are wicked. That we are enemies of God. That spiritually we are dead men walking. And so the Bible teaches that we suffer because we are born into a sin nature that we inherited from Adam. And that we, are, but we also sin bringing the natural consequences of sin into our lives. The natural consequences of living apart from God. However, this doesn't mean that all of our suffering is directly related to our personal sin or the sin of our parents. In some cases, as in this one, God uses our suffering in order to encourage other people to find strength and believe in Him. As we, as we see someone suffer well and even at times experience healing, we're encouraged in our faith. And so in verses 6 and 7, we see Jesus do something that's really strange. Um, it looks unusual to us. Jesus spits in the mud. Just imagine that for a minute. Like, how long did this process take? How many times did Jesus spit in the mud and begin to knead the mud into a paste? It wouldn't have been completely unusual in this day and time. The same way in which when we burn our finger, we oftentimes will stick it in our mouth. Um, in this moment, Jesus takes this paste and he puts it on the man's eyes. We don't know completely why. But it definitely would have caused the man to go and to have to wash it off. And as he goes and he washes it off, something amazing happens. Imagine that moment that he saw for the first time. Imagine how overwhelming it must have been to him. Jesus is going to show us that this is what it's like in our lives when he offers us forgiveness. When he makes us right with God, that we are overwhelmed that we, at the grace of God that we're now able to see. Really quick, we're going to fly through the rest of this passage. There's four sets of interviews that take place. We're just going to kind of read it. Verses 8 through 12 begin. The first interview is, is the man is interviewed by his neighbors. And this poor guy, he has just come to see for the very first time and for the next few moments of his life, the next few hours, he goes through, I mean, just interview after interview. Pick up in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. This man's overall demeanor was so changed by his healing that some people didn't even recognize him. Have you known that to be true of anyone who's come to know Jesus who externally was just... Um, kind of a, a over and above just a huge sinner and you see the contrast in your life in their life and it's almost like you don't even recognize them 
I think for some people, they had never really seen this man. They'd seen his handicap, but they'd never really paid attention to him. And in this moment, they're seeing him for the first time. And he doesn't know what's taking place. Pick up this in the story. You might not have recognized it if you've read it before. But it seems at this point in time that this man has never seen Jesus. He's heard Jesus' voice. He's received instruction by Jesus. He's gone to the pool. He's washed his eyes. And he can see. But he's, he's being asked all these questions by the Pharisees and all of his neighbors. And his answer is, I don't know. I can't even serve as an eyewitness. I was blind when all of this took place. He's never even seen Jesus. Look at verses 13 through 17. Now the blind man is interviewed by the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So you know that's going to cause trouble. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I wash and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. And others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind men, what do you see about him since he has, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Pharisees had made the Old Testament and their tradition to be equal. And so they wrongly accused Jesus of, of breaking the law on the Sabbath. He was working. He was kneading the mud. And then he healed the man. Others of the Pharisees were amazed by this incredible miracle. That they had never seen anyone healed from birth before. But notice the man's response. And how he comes to explain and to begin to understand who Jesus is. He moves from calling Jesus a man to now calling him a prophet. Pick up in verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know of who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So the Pharisees are confused. They're divided on, did Jesus really heal this man or not? And so they bring his parents in and they begin to grill his parents. And his parents are scared. They don't want to be put out of the synagogue. Because that would mean that they would be rejected by, by all of their Jewish friends. That most likely that they wouldn't be able to buy or sell. That they would lose their livelihood which would be at stake. And so they say, he's of age, ask him. Any Jewish boy at that time... At the time of his bar mitzvah, at probably ages 12 or 13, he would be considered of age. And so they said, we know that he was born blind, but how he was healed, we don't know. Ask him. So we pick up in verse 24. Now the Pharisees move from interviewing the parents back to interviewing the man for a second time. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, 
give glory to God. We know that the man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. This man has stepped up on a little soapbox. He's starting to preach to the Pharisees. He says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out. The man shows up again in front of the Pharisees and he reports on what he's experienced. And he reminds us that Christianity, that the gospel is both historical and personal. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the life that Jesus lived, the sacrifice that he made on the cross, and the fact that, he was, that God raised him from the dead and that he defeated death in the grave. But the gospel is also personal in the way that it has affected our lives. And the Pharisees become very annoyed. And it's comical as, if, as he asked them, do you want to be his disciples too? This man comes to a very logical conclusion he comes, as he tells his story, he realizes that this man, Jesus, must be from God. That there is no one like him. Finally, we end the story in verses 35 through 41. Jesus finds him after he's been put out of the synagogue. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you've seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see me may see and those who see me may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Jesus goes back and finds the former blind man after hearing he's been cast out of the synagogue. And he asks if he believes in the Son of Man. This is an Old Testament term that was used to speak of the Messiah who would come. And when Jesus explains that he is the Messiah, the man immediately believes. Jesus ends by explaining that he came into the world in order to give sight to the blind. But for those who can see that their guilt still remains. What did Jesus mean by that? Some quick takeaways from this text today. Number one, don't run from suffering. If you're dealing with suffering, first examine your own life. 
Invite someone into your life who you trust, who knows you well, and repent of any known sin. But have someone else speak into your life that you trust because we can't see ourselves. Particularly areas of our personality in which we have functioned that have been resourceful to us in the past. We've functioned in the way that seems best to us, but maybe it's not always best. So be open to listen, be humble to listen to others' instructions. Don't run from your suffering. Also realize that God does his greatest work in our trials. It's during these times that we come to know Jesus as a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The more we know Jesus, the greater he becomes to us. And so in the year of 2020, there is a possibility that God will do some of his greatest work if we will turn to him in the midst of our suffering. There is no other relationship like the relationship that we have with Jesus. He cares for us. He meets us in our suffering. Secondly, God uses your story to grow your faith. God uses your story to grow your faith. The blind man's story is an incredible encouragement to us of both evangelism and gospel mission. Because here's the truth. You don't have to understand everything to believe in something. The man teaches us that you don't have to understand everything to believe in something. How often in relationships do you fail to share a gospel witness with someone? Do you, share, do you fail to share how incredible of a difference that Jesus has made in your life? Because you're fearful that you don't know everything. That they're going to ask you about the dinosaurs. Or that they're going to ask you about the Trinity. Or what about that virgin birth? And that you're going to be forced to explain something that seems unexplainable. But this man teaches us that you don't have to understand everything to believe something. I love what he says in verse 20 thing. In verse 25 he says, One thing I do know. I was blind but now I see. That's the greatest testimony that we can share with our unbelieving friends. This is my story. Jesus has shaped the entirety of my life. And I want to encourage you just today to go back and reflect on your story. And how Jesus has shaped the entirety of your life. As we share our story, our faith grows stronger. In, in retelling the account over and over again, the former blind man moves from Jesus the man to Jesus the prophet to Jesus the son of man to finally declaring him Jesus who is his Lord. There's something powerful about telling our stories that allows us to be, to be grounded, not only in our own stories, but more importantly, in the story of the gospel. And to understand who we are and how God is moving. Because while some things may be unexplainable, our personal experiences are undeniable. And so for the believer, there's nothing more powerful than sharing our testimonies. Because a friend might not believe in the truths of what we share, they might argue with the facts, but our stories, our personal experiences, while they may be unexplainable to some people, they are undeniable in our own lives. Finally, 
Not only should we not run from suffering and we see that God uses our story to grow our faith, but the gospel message blinds and it heals. This is what Jesus meant. Spurgeon said it this way, The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Which will it be for you today? Jesus' light blinds the prideful, the hard-hearted, who are convinced that they are in need of nothing. But it illuminates the needy, those who have surrendered, who are willing to believe. The only qualification for sight to be given is recognition of our blindness. And so it doesn't really matter if you're not a believer yet or if you're a follower of Jesus, each day of our lives, would we be willing to say that, that we are blind and that we are in need of a Savior? That in the midst of our suffering that we would trust Jesus? If you're not a believer, let me invite you. Begin with something. The man didn't understand everything, but he began with something. Invite Jesus to show you where he is invading your story. You don't have to know everything to believe in something. Invite Jesus into your suffering and your failure. Ask God to give you wisdom and offer forgiveness. He promises that he will never turn away. And if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, take some time to thank God for the incredible way that he has written your story. Look back on the script of God's story and see how he has invited you into that. If you're a Christian who is suffering today, I want to remind you of the incredible redemption and grace that Jesus has offered us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Being justified means we are at peace with God. We are in a continuous state of grace. And so when we meet suffering, when we meet difficult times, we can be reminded of God's grace that's been poured out on us. We can be reminded that God loves us, that he is a good father, that he desires what is best for us, and that what he wants is children who would be humble who would come to them acknowledging their blindness and recognizing their need of a Savior, their need to surrender themselves daily to the one who would say, I am the light of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this story. God, I thank you for the way that I look back over my own life and I see that you have written a story that I would never think possible. That you've taken a young country boy from a small town in Alabama who really despised school. And God, you've given me a love for your scriptures and a love for your church. And God, my, my life is the exact opposite of what I ever thought it would be. And God, it's all because of your grace. It's all because of the redemption that you've poured out on me. God, thank you that as believers who submit our lives to you, that we can be reminded that we are justified. 
God, that when we face suffering, that we remember that you see us just as if we've never sinned because of the grace of Jesus is poured out in our lives. God, I pray for those who are suffering today. God, I pray for those who are suffering and just trying to figure out in the scramble what to do with kids in the midst of school or how to provide for their families or just the uncertainty of a lack of schedule that we experience today and things being up in the air. God, in the midst of our crisis and our sufferings, God, as we turn to you, would you, God, remind us through your spirit of the great love that you have shown us through Jesus, that you would open our eyes, that we would see grace and mercy that you have poured out on us and that we would find our stability in you, Jesus, as we worship you each day of our life. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.